Lori, I am happy to have you on the Queer Writers of Crime team doing book recommendations. You've done a great job so far, and I'm sure that will continue. But today you're here for a reason other than giving a book recommendation. Care to share what that is? Yeah, I'm going to be talking about my new book that's just been published this month called Double Crossed, and I'm really excited to be with you. It's great. Well, you're the only member of the team that gives recommendations and is an author at the same time, which is great. So we'll get into that discussion right after this. It's time to put on your sleuthing cap, feel nail-biting dread, and face heart-racing fear. This is Queer Writers of Crime, where you'll get book recommendations and hear interviews with LGBTQ authors of mystery, suspense, and thriller novels. Here's your host, Brad Shree. Hi, I'm Brad, and I have Lori A. Egan with me as a guest, as we said earlier. Uh, welcome back, Lori. Thank you, Brad. It's been fun. Uh, last time I talked to you was in 2020, I believe. So this is this is great to see you again. Yes, this is your second time as a guest, and I'm glad you let me know you have a new book coming out because I had a fun time talking with you last time. And it's kind of fun having somebody that does book recommendations and is also an author on this show. How are things on the Jersey coast today? Uh, a little bit foggy. This time of year, the uh, ocean is still really cold, so we're getting some fog out there over the, uh, I look out over um, Manhattan and the Atlantic Ocean, so it's it's warm, though. <laughs> That's good. What do you Spring consider warm? Sprung. What do you consider warm? <laughs> I'd say it's probably about 60 okay. degrees, I, maybe, 62. Yeah, we're cold here. It's in the 50s. Two days ago, it was in the 80s. So that's kind of a quick drop. But speaking of cold water, I don't know how familiar you are with the Pacific Coast, but our water is always cold. It is. Yeah. It yeah. Uh, it surprises people. They come down to LA and they jump in the water and they're like, oh my God. Uh, it's because it comes down from Alaska or up north. So having grew up on the East Coast with the nice warm beaches, I just stay on the beach here. And, and I was never one, one to get in the water anyway. But anyway, we're not here to talk about the beach. First things first, when I decided to have people rotate each month giving recommendations, more than one person, I wanted to have three, I wanted diversity. So I reached out to many people, including you, for someone that they may know that would be good to give recommendations. And a lot of people said, I have a great idea. And then later they said, mm, I don't know if that person's really a good fit after all, now that I think about it. And when I asked you, you gave it some time, and then you kind of reluctantly raised your hand, and you said, I'll do it. Now, there was a lot of discussion before you made a firm decision, but you agreed. So I'm curious, what compelled you to agree to come on board and do the recommendations? My initial problem was that I, I don't know how to say this, I don't really read a lot of lesbian-oriented mysteries. I read a lot of mysteries and crime fiction, particularly I've been enjoying several that are by lesbians, but they're major players in the crime fiction market, internationally famous. So once I realized I could include some of these people like Val McDermott and Ann Holt, I thought, well, yeah, I can do this. I would like to because I'm already reading the books because I love them. And uh, I so I'm a little better on that, plus some of the older writers like Patricia Highsmith, who was a favorite of mine. And uh, as a result, so I'm not as strong on, on sort of the typical lesbian mystery put out by the lesbian presses right now. I do read some, but... Um, I, I'm more of a, a general reader. Once I realized that, I was ready to go. <laughs> well, I look forward to hearing more of you tell us what we should read. And you mentioned Patricia Highsmith. I, if I understand correctly, she was one of your inspirations. Yeah, when I first started writing, my first book, Jenny Kidd, was very much in the tradition of Highsmith, set in Venice, and it was, of course, a perfect city because all of the tangling canals really very much like a spider web, which is the effect that uh, Highsmith pretty much 
does in her writing. She takes an innocent and sort of creates a situation that gets tighter and tighter around the person, and there's usually a sociopathic. And this is also true of Double Crossed. This book was written uh, quite a while ago and then really seriously revised. Uh, so uh, those two books, Jenny Kidd and Double Crossed, have some strong similarities between them, both very much inspired by Highsmith. And I'm looking forward to getting a little into that whole uh, psychological aspect that you do. Lori's novel, Double Crossed, is a mystery, but she doesn't limit herself. She's written literary works, suspense. I've seen on your list, Lori, that you've put that you write romance mysteries. And I got to say, I appreciate that you categorize that differently than mysteries. I like both, but I like them categorized separately so people know what they're getting into. And you've also written some young adult novels, a comedy, four volumes of poetry, and the list goes on. Wow. (laughs) What type of writer would you say you are? I was talking to a publisher friend of mine who agreed with me that I'm very unusual in the sense that I tend to write the book that comes to me rather than follow in my own footsteps. So as a result, I am not really that easy to peg, either in terms of the genre of the book, because as you said, I go from literary to psychological suspense, which I do think that's a bit of a sweet spot for me. But I've done a really great madcap gay comedy, Fabulous, which I thought was really funny. And I also write, I'm a bridge writer in the sense that I don't always exclusively write for the LGBTQ market, although usually there is something in every book that would would appeal to that market. So I'm unusual in the sense that I don't always write the same kind of book and I don't always have the same exact readership. So I have no idea why this is. It just seems to be my style. <laughs> That's what works for you. All of your books, as far as I know, have been standalones. And is the reason that we're talking about, it, is that why we haven't seen a series most likely? Yes. There are a few that I've thought about going back to some of the character because I really like them. But then I usually wind up with another what if problem in my head or I channel a character who comes into me and just won't go away, uh, which sometimes happens. So as a result, I'm pretty busy, as you can tell from that many books out in different categories. Yeah, it doesn't seem like you get bored based on on all that (laughs) you do. And I know you do photography and and, uh, some other things. You're just a creative person. So I guess your answer is, a series maybe in the future, but we can't hold our breath. That's right. <laughs> it all depends on what your what your mood is. Now, I did say in addition to being a novelist, you're also a poet. And Jeffrey Round was on a couple of months ago because he had released a book of poetry. And I find the more I am introduced to crime authors, the more I realize how many also write poetry. Do you know why there may be some connection? No, I honestly don't. I wrote poetry first. Uh, I started when I was seven years old, and the fiction writing came a little bit later. So my first novel I started when I was between 12 and 13 years old. So I was really predominantly a poet, and by pretty much through most of my adult, young adult life, uh, that's what I did. And it wasn't until I semi-retired from being a book designer that I was able to really sit down and take the time to work at longer fiction after sort of cutting my teeth on some short stories. So I have no idea. Now, I can see the relevance between my photography and the poetry because those two often are really tightly glued together. Sometimes I'll go out and take some you know, photographs and then come home and write poems. So that really is a a very tight linkage there for me. And I think being a photographer also really helps with setting and seeing a place and what's happening in a scene. I think that's a very helpful thing to have a strong visual ability as a writer. So it sounds like because you're a writer, you write fiction, you've written poetry, you do photography. I know you used to do book covers. Am I correct I on that? I did the whole book. You did yeah. the whole, okay. 
all very creative. And it sounds to me like you're saying that there's an interconnectivity between it all. Yes. Yes, definitely. Um, all the way through growing up, I wanted to be a writer. That's what I wanted to do. And I was accepted at Bennington and Bard in creative writing. And I don't know what happened. My mother was a very successful painter, but uh, I don't know who put the thumb on the scale, but I switched over and got a degree in graphic design and photography from Carnegie Mellon University. So I sort of went off onto the visual side of things, which was completely different for me. And then my first job was at Princeton University Press, which I did the promotion design and then also moved into the book design department there. So I was able to sort of combine publishing and and learning some editing and all kinds of things when I was there. Um, so I have the whole whole background in book design as well. Yeah. Well, I can definitely see how photography could really inspire you with poetry. And you said it also helps you with setting. It's not uncommon to see some authors will post pictures either in social media or in their newsletters and say, usually it's not a person, but sometimes they'll say, this is the person that inspired me to write about Bob, or this is the building that inspired me to write blah, blah, restaurant. This is what it looks like. Do you ever do that? Usually... Some books are very place-oriented, like Jenny Kidd was set in Venice, so Venice was definitely the inspiration for that book. Uh, the Ungodly Hour was set in Mykonos, and again, it was about a photographer, so I got to cram in a bunch of uh, photography workshop lessons in there. So it, sometimes the place is important. In Double Crossed, actually, the house is a really important part of the entire novel. It's a character almost. And I based it on a modern house that I lived in for a short while, though I made this into more of a Tudor-style home. But I use that as the basis of, of it. So sometimes that's those are the drivers for the beginning of a novel. And Double Cross was definitely very much of a house thing. Well, regarding the the Venice thing, uh, you may know, I my stories are in Los Angeles, and I use real locations. Like the last book, I used a real, very popular restaurant in West Hollywood, and I described the restaurant. But most of the places I talk about are fictional. And this is the reason I ask, even though I may know a building that I'm basing it on, I don't share that with my readers. And also when I'm writing, I have pictures in front of me or easily accessible of what each of my characters, including my protagonist, looks like. But I don't share those with them either. So if you want to know what Mitch O'Reilly looks like, sorry, you're never going to see the picture. Because I want to give the detail, but I want them to fill in the blanks. And, and I don't know. That's why I was asking the question. I don't know if, how you feel about that. Well, occasionally I, I do like you do. I will occasionally uh, have a very distinct face in mind when I'm starting. A Bittersweet Tale, for example, this guy channel. I came into me one day channeling it, uh, and he looked like Nick Nolte. And, you know, he even spoke like him. <laughs> so I had Nick Nolte in my mind when I was writing this book. And um, But sometimes I've also pulled out photographs of uh, people from magazines or whatever that really just seem like the exact look that I want. So I put them in my folder, but I don't share them. Yeah. I learned in a class once that, because sometimes you'll see it, they'll say, he looked like uh, Brad Pitt. And I learned that's a very big no-no because uh, an editor I know was right. Her daughter was writing a book and she said that the guy was very sexy and looked like, I think it's Trent Lautner. He was in one, in one of those sparkly vampire uh, werewolf shows. I can't remember the name. But anyway, he's an actor with a very nice body. But her mother, the editor, remembered him from some other thing where he was scrawny. And she, when she read it, she thought, why are you saying this guy's sexy? So there's a big danger with putting a, a, a celebrity's name in there. So I do want to tell my readers and the listeners out there that know I have a major crush on Paul Rudd. Mitch is not Paul Rudd. He does not look like Paul Rudd. He is another actor I look I like a lot, but it's not Paul. <laughs> Just to make that clear. 
though I don't know why I didn't choose him. Anyway, let's move on. <laughs> How has writing poetry helped you write fiction? Because you said that's where you started. I think it gives me a certain sense of flow when I'm writing, a balance in, in the syncopation, perhaps. And I think because I'm a very natural poet in terms of using a lot of nature, I think that that really has enhanced my awareness of my surroundings. And so as a result, I think I'm, I'm pretty good at describing locations, and I'm getting better, I hope, at describing how people behave and the little ticks that they do, which mean a certain thing. So you don't have to say, she said this sadly, you can actually show, show this through some physical behavior. So the poetry, I think, has always been a really useful background for me. I think it's just, it, it, it's been very good for me. Yeah. If you enjoy Queer Writers of Crime, let others know and leave a review on Apple Podcasts or iTunes. Who knows? Brad may just read yours on the air. Given the variety of novels that you've written or, or types of books that you've written, you kind of already answered this because you said something was your sweet spot, but I'm going to ask you anyway. If you go to a library or a bookstore, which shelves are you likely to head for? I'm probably into psychological suspense or mystery. So you're actually, when you, you were asking me to you know review some books, this was my happy zone. <laughs> <laughs> what is it about uh, suspense and mysteries that puts you in a happy zone? Well, the crime fiction that I'm reading is often a lot more complex than I write myself. So I sit there and feel very, very envious, <laughs> as I will describe when I'm reviewing some of these books. I just think it's a nice break. It's like it rests my mind a little bit and I don't have to sit there and work so hard as you might on a literary work. Although I really do like mysteries and crime fiction that are really well written. That's still important to me. Well, you like to get deep in psychological thrillers or, or crime fiction, yet your novel, Fabulous, and opera buffa 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 <laughs> uh, is a humorous novel and as you said from what i haven't read it but from what i understand and read it's a very beloved humorous novel but again you you mostly are writing dark side psychological stories are there specific things that compels you to write one or the other well a case of fabulous i was sitting on my deck one day minding my own business and the main character came barreling in and wouldn't shut up, and he was very funny. So I came into my computer, and out he came. His voice, his looks, everything. I mean, I just he was just clear as a bell, and he wouldn't. He, he just stuck around. So I really felt very compelled by this voice, and I, I've heard that other authors have the same experience. Not every case is this true. Not every book has this sort of channeling experience. But I have written a couple of funnier short stories, too, in my collection. So I I guess I have a little bit of a, com a comedic streak in me. I studied a bit of psychology, and that has always been my, my real fascination. So as much as I had fun with with Gill and Fabulous, and if anybody wants some real change of pace, just, you know, something fun, that's a good book to read. Well, I think studying psychology and sociology are great because you'll never get bored because as long as you live, you'll never fully understand people, but it's fun to learn as much as you can. Yeah. How difficult is it to write uh, humor? I didn't find, actually, I found it a little bit easier than writing psychological suspense because I didn't have as much, I don't know how to describe this, I didn't have to do as much in, insightful kind of characterization because this character was so verbal and so funny that he just, he just took over and he sort of half wrote the book. So that was pretty easy. The only thing I had to do was just keep track of where he was running off to. It was a very madcap kind of story. He's a tenor, an opera singer, and he just, uh, he, he's down on his luck and he's doing a drag show because he's trying to make some money. And then he gets hired as a soprano in an opera. 
And then he gets hired as a tenor in Rigoletto in two different productions at the same time. So he's constantly putting on wigs, taking them off, you know, dressing one way and then another. And then he gets involved with a mafiosa who loves Handel. And she's the enemy of one of the producers of one of the two operas. So he just finds himself completely in a mess. So it was just so much fun to write. I really had fun with that one. I, I wish more people would read it because I think it's it's good for these this day and age when people really need to laugh a little bit. <laughs> it sounds a lot to me like some of the madcap comedies from the 30s and 40s. And, and yes. It, it really does. And, and an opera singer who is getting by by being a drag queen, that's awesome. <laughs> said, yeah. You said, uh, you know, he kind of came to you and took over. And I don't know any author that when that happens, doesn't absolutely love it. It's happened with me. You know, some characters I have to really sit down and say, "Mm, well, what I want to be. But some of them just jump out and say, here I am, here I am. So since he did jump out at you like that and to a degree wrote himself, not to steal your thunder, did you find that was true, not just about him, but throughout the whole story? just kind of seemed to flow? Oh, he, he stuck around. He he was on my shoulder. And, you know, and not every book this, you know, like Double Crossed, I didn't have the, that channeling experience at all there. So, you know, every book is different. I'd say a couple of these, Outcast Oracle, A Bittersweet Tale, Fabulous, and I guess those are the ones that really came through with a character that just appeared. So you're here... You're here about Double Cross, so we probably should talk about that book at least a little bit. And I call this Beyond the Blur because I, when I ask people to talk about their books, they're always kind of afraid, you know, how much do I give away? So I don't accept the blurb, but I don't expect you to give it all away. So I call it Beyond the Blurb. Give us what is on the book jacket or on Amazon, and then a little bit more. Tell us what the story is. Okay, well, the... First line on the back cover, which I think is really good, is Ever dream of finding the perfect lover? When Alexandria Wyatt meets Marnie Hardwick, Alex is thrilled to end her solitary, unhappy existence. After several blissful months, the two women buy a house set deep in a dense pine forest. However, the landscape soon dissolves from idyllic to disturbing, as Alex begins to suspect the relationship is a trap. Fueled by jealousy, anger, and curiosity, Alex rushes into a bizarre intersection of past and present that holds treacherous consequences. So Double Crossed is a very good title for this book because it works on a lot of levels. Some seem rather superficial at the beginning of the book, but as we go along and the plot opens up, uh, you're going to find a lot more underlying versions of the concept of Double Crossed. So this is really a sort of tale of desire, deception, betrayal, and revenge. And I think it's also, it starts out as a love story, but it doesn't stay there very long. It sort of cascades into a nightmare. And again, this book was written very much in the tradition of Patricia Highsmith. And I think you as an author know that when you're done with a novel and you're writing a blurb, sometimes you're like, this is harder to write than the book was. And I got to tell you, that blurb is damned intriguing. Very well done. I mean, just how anybody could read that and not want to pick up the book, I don't know. I am curious about one thing. Double-crossed is normally spelled as two separate words or with a hyphen. You have it as just one word, double-crossed. What's the reasoning behind that? I don't know. It just seemed to be more appropriate in a sense because it's almost like a verb that is being used here, but it is also the state of the novel. And I don't know. I just uh, considered putting the hyphen in, but I just... Just didn't do it. I just felt it was better, just stronger as one word. Just didn't feel right. It didn't feel right. (laughs) So tell us a little more about Alexandra, because as a character, she's very interesting. So give us a little more. Even the blurb gives you an idea of she was looking for somebody. She found somebody. But what about her past? What makes her tick? That got her in the situation. Well, I can't tell you a lot because of the plot, but she is a a designer. Uh, She does fabric designs, and 
she's an illustrator in a sense, and her parents are both dead, and they were divorced at a young age when she was a young person. So she was actually left a fair amount of money. So, But she doesn't tell Marnie this because her mother was always telling her, don't reveal anything financial. Keep that all to yourself until you're absolutely sure that your partner is trustworthy. So she, in a sense, is, is not being completely honest with Marnie Hardwick. Okay, so that's one of the first levels of the double-crossed idea at the beginning. So her narration is not exactly untrustworthy, but in a sense, she's an interesting, intricate character. Her life has been traveling. Her father lived overseas, so she spent a lot of time overseas. And she's been a loner, a very solitary person most of her life, although she's attractive. So meeting Marnie is like the first time she really feels willing to make a commitment to someone. Okay, you mentioned earlier you had an interest to read a little of the novel. Would you like to do that? I'd be happy to. Sure, let's hear it. Okay, this is from Chapter 1. That's a good place to start. (laughs) It is. I cut just a teeny bit out just because it was a little chatty, but okay. Marnie Hardwick and I met in the dark heart of February. Despite my emotional reticence, I was instantly bewitched by this sexy, funny, bright woman with fiery red hair and flashing green eyes. I believed luck had finally kissed me on the forehead. Everything about us seemed faded, as if we were floating down a river to happiness. Our first date was hot, so passionate that the night migrated into a weekend. And we talked, really talked, about our careers, our many shared interests, and the years spent alone, searching for the perfect woman. I tried to keep my balance, to be logical, careful, and prudent, but I was smitten, besotted, infatuated, and hopelessly in love. Before I knew it, Marnie was spending more time at my tiny apartment than hers, neither of which was sufficiently large for two people. Then she began joking about buying a house. Today, a sunny Saturday in April, Marnie poured coffee into two travel mugs and suggested we go for a drive in her convertible with the top down, though the air was still cool. That's what the coffee is for, dear, she told me, to keep us warm. She accompanied this comment with a sultry glance that implied she would do this better than the coffee. We wandered south through curving country roads that were strangers to the orderly concept of north, south, east, west. Within no time, I was lost, but Marnie was at the wheel and seemed to know this area of New Jersey, an area I regarded as a backwater populated by horses and farms and deficient in theaters, bookstores, galleries, and concert halls. In other words, the necessities. After an hour of meandering, we rounded a bend in the road and saw a for sale sign in front of a house encircled by acres of dense pines. Marnie slowed the car and turned into the long driveway. Oh, Alexandra, she cried, look at this place. The two-story house was a hodgepodge, predominantly Tudor in style with a stout turret at left, its conical roof rising above the main building. It's unusual, I replied, examining the gray and brown stone facade frizzed with ivy. Unusual? It's wonderful. Marnie switched off the ignition, rushed from the car, and walked toward the house as if she were already its proprietor. Although I was worried about trespassing, I followed her down a path and around the back where we discovered an expansive deck hemmed in by the thick forest. Marnie turned to me, her green eyes bright with excitement. Oh, isn't it? This is romantic. Let's call the realtor. What? I shook my head. I don't know. She grabbed my arm and tugged like a small child. Oh, come on. It won't hurt to see the house. She gave me the sweetest smile, an irresistible confection. We've been talking about living together. 
my reservations were the usual ones, sandblasted by a life of solitude and years of listening to my mother pontificate on the merits of financial separation and privacy. And there was the worrisome fact that Marnie and I had known each other only nine weeks, although the time together had been an absolute bliss. In all my 33 years, I'd never felt this way about a woman before, though I'd had several intense affairs. I asked myself, what was the worst thing that could happen if Marnie and I bought a house and our relationship failed? The legal agreement to protect our separate in investments, the most I could lose was a few thousand dollars, which I could afford. At least I would have attempted commitment, something I'd never had the courage to do. Are you sure, I asked? It isn't too far from your work? Just a different direction. Marnie grinned at me and removed her cell phone to call the realtor. Fifteen minutes later, the woman arrived and greeted us in the driveway. She carried listing sheets and a survey. Hi, I'm Alex Wyatt. I shook the agent's hand. And this is Marnie Hardwick. Okay, here you go. And I, I want to say what I, what I love about your writing. I, I've said this many times on the show. You were talking about you're, you're very good about writing place and setting. You didn't do a whole lot of descriptive writing on, on what we were looking at. But I could see it all clear as day. And I consider that a great skill, and I really enjoy when an author can do that. Well, thank you. Um, you know, the description of the interior is a little more fulsome because that's really the stage set for a lot, for at least 50, over fifty percent of the book and what happens. So, uh, I used I did layouts of the the inside. Although, as I said, I used a, a layout from a, a house that I lived in briefly, and um, so you know that as I say, the house is a character in this book. Yeah, places can be characters quite often, whether it be cities or neighborhoods or obviously a house. We talked a lot the last time you were on about your photography. And uh, despite your lifelong love for writing and, and such, you received a BFA in graphic design and photography from Carnegie Mellon University. I heard that's a pretty good school, <laughs> and you did an advanced workshop with a, a National Geographic photographer. Are you still actively uh, snapping your outstanding photos? I wish I could say I, I was busy doing it because uh, I, I really love it. I, I still take photographs for some of my cover illustrations, but I've had a series of pretty severe foot reconstructions and orthopedic problems so walking around with a camera is just really almost beyond me now and it it drives me crazy because my head wants to go to it but my feet are rather unwilling and, and start screaming at me after I'm out standing for even you know a few minutes so I still teach fine art photography I have um, 14 students have been with me for many, many years. They're all professional. So I, I really am a fine arts photographer. And I, though I did do opera and theater work as well at the Metropolitan Opera and uh, Philadelphia and other places, so which also helped for, for Fabulous um, for writing that book. Well, I do hope for your sake that you are able to continue with your photography because I wasn't being flippant when I said you're outstanding. I've seen your photos online, and in fact, you've had you have a few uh, samples on your website. Not nearly as many as I would like, but they are there. So, if you want to see some of her pictures, go to, go to her website, which will be in the in the show notes, and uh, you'll see she's really a good photographer. So back to writing. Almost all authors say they got the writing bug at an early age. So I stopped asking that question. And you you mentioned yourself. Uh, uh, I don't know if it was before we started recording or once the show started, but you said you started in uh, poetry. I think at, at seven you started writing your first yes, poem. Yes, I did. I was in the bathtub, <laughs> and my mother, I screamed for my mother to bring me paper and pencils. She thought I was completely off my rocker, and then I promptly sat down and wrote four stanzas out. <laughs> that is an awesome story. Are you a big bubble bath person? 
I wasn't that. It was just a regular old bath, but no, I, I don't watch anymore, particularly because with my feet, getting in and out would be really a problem, so I'm... I'm not. Sorry to say. <laughs> uh, I was just thinking if you're in the bathtub, when you get your inspiration all the time, that would be uh, uh, kind of, you'd have to keep pen and paper uh, to be safe at hand. And even that would be difficult. So what would you say? If, I want you to really think hard. This isn't a question of what books inspired you to really pursue being a writer, but what are the earliest books that you can remember? I loved Winnie the Pooh, I have to say. I really did. A lot of the typical books that children were read scared me to death. My mother had a little bit of a macabre streak, and so I think she didn't help me out very much. So she she inclined me to have a lot of nightmares. Um, when I was about 10, I was given the galleys for Sterling North's uh, Rascal, which was his first book, because my mother knew either the publisher or somebody who knew him. So I got to read the galleys because they wanted a kid's point of view. So I think that really sort of set me on the on the road to writing my own novel at that point. And I, I'm trying to remember other books. Oh, I was a I read all the time. I mean, I always had a book in my hand, and I, I read pretty much anything I could get my paws on. I can't think of anything right off the top of my head at the moment. Well, it sounds like the, the book you mentioned was your aha moment. Yeah. I didn't read Winnie the Pooh as a child, but I had an ex and we used to go on long distance drives and we read Winnie the Pooh books to each other. There is an amazing amount of good philosophical information in there. So it's a great kid's book, but it's a damn good adult book as well. I thoroughly enjoyed it. And I thought, why didn't I read this as a kid? Well, it just could, could be the difference in age. You know, when I was growing up, that was a very, still a very popular title. So I want to talk about one of your books that's a little bit older. You wrote it, uh, I'd say somewhere around 10 years ago, and it was called Outcast Oracle. It's a novel involving trauma from religion. I don't know how much it involves, if at all, homosexuality in, in, in the church, but religion and LGBTQ folk, they're generally sometimes a disconnect, but usually a really strong interest because of the conflict between the two. So that story really intrigues me. W would you share the story with us? Yeah, the main character, I can't remember how old she is, but she wants to be a writer and she's living near Lake Ontario in uh, New York State, Upper New York State, which was uh, the setting was actually the the start for this because I have a poet friend who I was visiting, and she has her grandfather who is sort of taking care of her, and he's a real con guy, charming, funny, very very bright, well read, but he gets it into his head that he's going to have a chapel and get all these gullible people to come in and give money over to him you know he doesn't believe in god or anything and she, and charlie the main character doesn't either and then he gets the idea in addition to a couple other scams he's running well why don't i pretend that charlie is an oracle and then you know she's going to have performed some fake miracles so that's where the title comes from and she has a very wry voice. Uh, she, I, I loved her voice. It's not one I've heard before. It's a little bit on the folksy side, but she's really smart. And I really love that character. She was just so much fun to write. So the book is really about the gullibility of people who believe in things like religion. And it was published by the Humanist Press. And it also was really it was cited, I think, in 2013 uh, for the Kirkus Review Best Books of 2013. It was on the list for a young adult novel, though it's really an adult novel as well. It's not exclusively for young adults. Well, if I understand correctly, the Humanist Press doesn't exist anymore, but it, it was a part of the American Humanist Society. Is that correct? Yeah. It's a publishing arm. I don't know whether it's com completely closed but they, they only did a few books of fiction and mine was one they also are still keeping my fog and other stories my story collection alive but i haven't i really don't know much what they're doing but the person i was dealing with left a long time ago so 
they mostly do nonfiction, as you would expect. Well, I hope it was a good experience because I did go, their website still exists at least. Yes. And they have a list of authors. And when you click on the list of authors, your picture is the first one that pops up and is big as day. So. <laughs> I haven't checked for a while. <laughs> <laughs> so, so go have a look. They may not be around, but their website is still there. So out of curiosity, are you a member of the American Humanist Society? Not anymore. I was for a while. It just got to be, you know, I started having these foot surgeries and I couldn't get to the meetings and our local chapter. I, I, I just, uh, I had a little problem with the president uh, because he promised to do a special event for me and then he changed his mind. So I really just haven't done it. I still keep up and I still read a little bit on the subject. And almost every book I write has got some little humanist slant, uh, either softly said or or a little more obviously said because I have been in my mind an atheist since I was a child I was not baptized and one book that I did read when I was about 12 was Bertrand Russell why I'm not a Christian which wow. gave me an aha moment and said yes yes thank goodness so I was completely armed for all my religious friends to argue <laughs> I'm sure it wasn't very happy for them <laughs> well, I want to get into how they fit into your books, but not everybody necessarily understands what a humanist is. Everybody understands what an atheist is. So can you, there's just a little bit of difference. Can you explain what a humanist is? Well, I think a humanist, and for example, Unitarians are, are not so different in many ways. Humanists don't believe in God particularly, but it's sort of a soft version of atheism and it, it, it's more spiritual and it embraces, you know, people that just say they don't know. But it's, um, it's a secular approach to uh, living and a philosophy in a way. So, you know, you have a really wide range of people that are humanists. So if, if you don't believe in God, why should you be good? <laughs> that's what I think they say, you know, you don't have to be believe in God to be good. I think that's one of their their uh, sayings. But uh, I never saw any correlation at all. In fact, I often thought that religion was a negative influence on people because it either made them very fearful because they thought, you know, this figure was um, standing over them or the minister or preacher was really scaring them in sermons. So I have never I have never felt comfortable with religion ever since I was a child. And my parents, my father was raised Catholic and had very bad experiences. And my mother, I think she had a, a devastating loss of her, her husband when she was fairly young and leaving her with three children. So whatever religion she had sort of went by the wayside. And so my mother was not really very, she could yeah, she was sort of ambivalent. So they let me decide what I wanted to do, and I decided I didn't want to do anything. <laughs> <laughs> well, you mentioned the Unitarians, and I think I've shared on the show that I am a Unitarian Universalist. And just for those of you that aren't aware what it is, it's not a brand new religion. It's been around for over 500 years. And it has a Christian base. When it first started, mainly the belief is that there, the Father, Son, and Holy Ghost is, doesn't exist, that Jesus was Jesus and God was God, and they aren't the same person. That's how it began. And as you can probably imagine, a lot of people were burned at the stake. <laughs> but with time, it's, it really loosened up. If you go back east, there are still some that are more Christian-based than the others. My church, I would guess that, well, the church I used to go to before I moved, I would say probably half are atheists and humanists. And then we had a lot of uh, what we call recovering Catholics, or they call themselves recovering Catholics. Uh, and so I totally get, it, it's all about being a good person without having to be dictated by a God or worrying about eternal damnation to be good. So what, what interests me is that that is your belief that you, you are a humanist, what compels you enough that you felt a need or a huge desire to be involved in an organization that promoted it? Uh, when I was looking for a publisher, this book just seemed to be a perfect fit for the humanist press. 
And because they espouse a lot of my beliefs, that really made them very attractive to me. And as I say, I, almost every novel I've written and many short stories, there is some kind of little comment, remark by a character about religion and his or her beliefs or lack thereof. So this is a real theme for me, and, it, you know, it's sort of woven through my work, although sometimes it's very subtle. Other times, it, you know, like the outcast oracle, it's much more pronounced. That's really a Mark Twain kind of satire almost about the whole religion thing. And it's, it's, it's actually a little funny because people are amazingly gullible, particularly in a rural area like this New York State setting. So we have reached the time for awkward questions authors get. Are you ready? Sure. <laughs> okay. And as I say every week, I surveyed authors and said, what have you been asked that made you uncomfortable, was weird, was rude? Give me a list. And they did. So what I do is I spin the wheel and then Lori will get one of the questions that I was given. So here we go. Hi, right, Lori. Are you ready for your question? Sure. Writing must be a nice hobby, but what do you really do? That's all I do, really, except for teaching a little photography. I work seven days a week, and uh, because I, I am financially okay, luckily, very fortunately, um, I, I, I was able to stop doing my book design work, and because of my walking disability, I was unable to continue doing a lot of the things I like to do. So by default, sitting at a computer and working, my writing was really a natural thing for me to do. So I never really, uh, I never had any, any doubts about it once I got going again. Well, you know, when that question popped up, I almost skipped it and wanted to go to another question. And the reason is because I, I understood from, I don't know, something I read that you take your writing seriously as a job, almost like you punch in and punch out a time clock. Yes, I probably work more hours than I ever did in my life. I am really, I'm at my desk every morning by about 7.30, quarter to eight, and I work usually till five or 5.30. And that's, I don't always work that long a schedule on weekends, but I usually do. And I, I'm going to be working through Easter weekend, I'm sure of that. Well, I know yeah, you won't I, be celebrating Easter. I won't be celebrating. <laughs> <laughs> Although I used to have a beagle and I used to call it Rabbit Day. <laughs> but yeah, I, I've always been a very diligent worker when I was a book designer. I, I worked long hours and I went freelance. And so I'm, I was always used to being very careful about my time and very dedicated. So when I moved over into writing it just naturally flowed into it and there's a lot of busy work with writing too nowadays you know promotion and keeping up all the social media nonsense and you know it's there's a lot more than just sitting down and writing novels so that's and then i edit and polish probably 30 to 40 times through every manuscript well wow, that's impressive that is a long time there's a magic number I have in my head for a number of words per day. And given that it seems like you write probably a little longer than most, I, I don't know how much time you spend with all the other busy work that we have to do. Do you have a per day word goal? I used to a little bit more in the early days. Now, maybe it's because I'm older. I'm having a little more trouble with the flow. Uh, it doesn't seem to, or maybe I'm just more self-critical, but I can write anywhere from a thousand words to five thousand words. Five thousand would be an extremely good day. Mm -hmm. But I always reread what I wrote the day before as a way to kick off into that day's work. So I'm rereading and editing the day before's work when I start to sort of get into the flow again. Yeah, I reread the day before to get the flow ro rolling again. When you did have a number, what was that number? Usually. Uh, I tried to get about at least 3,000 words. Okay, that's more than normal. A really good day would be 5,000. That would be probably with a lot of dialogue, you know, so that there would be, that's a lot easier to write in many ways. That's pretty aggressive. Most authors know from uh, Stephen King's excellent book on writing called On Writing. 
his goal is 2,000 words a day. And it's funny, even people I know that haven't read that book, 2,000 seems to be the, the magic number that most people seem to have. Uh, so to be able to do three and 5,000 is impressive. Well, that was a little earlier on. I would say it's less now because I, I, I my brain doesn't work quite as well as it is to. <laughs> <laughs> Given that you have so much freedom as an author, is it a struggle not to get stra- distracted and, and lose focus? No, not very much. I don't know why that's, I've never had a problem with that. No matter what it is that I was doing, whether it be, you know, playing tennis or photography or anything, I've always had a very good ability to sit down and concentrate on something and and really work on it. Um, you know, I don't know why that is. My mother was a painter and she worked all day at the studio in front of an easel father was a builder and he did the same thing so both of my parents were very independent and they both were self-employed and they just were very dedicated people so uh, I guess I picked it up and printed from from both of them that's a nice thing to have come naturally to you because I also set specific times of day to write unfortunately they are more like suggestions than a rule I would like them to be a rule I have a challenge with Facebook because I do some contract work for a little extra money each month for a company that requires I be on Facebook. So I have a separate login for that so I don't get too involved in in chatting. But unfortunately, it's really easy to flip from one account to the other. So I can't get lost into Facebook. But what I started doing, I bought very cheaply a few months ago is a program called Freedom. I don't know if you're familiar with it. No. It is beautiful. There's a couple of ways you can do it. You can just turn it on and it will lock you out of all social media. It knows what most people like in social media. I typically am a YouTube junkie. That's where I can fall down a rabbit hole. So if you want to go the easy route, you do that. Or you can give it a list in addition to social media, what other sites it should lock up. Or you can, what I do is say, these are the night, the, the sites I need to get to. There may be sites I have to go to while I'm writing the thesaurus or um, the Chicago manual style, something of that. And you set the time and it locks up your screen and you can't get in. All you can do is you can set it for five minutes or the whole day. And it is beautiful. So if you're having a struggle out there, it is the thing to get. And it, you don't have to be a writer, anybody that gets distracted from any of that stuff that has work to do. It's it's called freedom. I tried several. It's the one that I found works the best. Well, it has been great talking with you. And I look forward to more of your book recommendations in the future. Thank you for coming back as a guest. Well, my pleasure, Brad. It's always great to talk to you. And again, of course, her name is Lori A. Egan, and the book that we are discussing is her latest novel, Double Crossed, which, I will stress, is available to purchase right now. So, Lori would love you to do that. 